And this morning, if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25, um, we're going to cover... We're going to cover that chapter, the story of David, David and Abigail. This is probably a far less familiar story um, to you than, say, I don't know, David and Goliath. Um, and so as you're turning there this morning, um, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we approach his word. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much. For your word. Thank you for the blessing that it is to sit under its teaching. And I pray that this morning those sitting under my teaching will be as blessed as I've been over the last couple of weeks. Um, God, it is you that gives understanding to your word. And we pray that your spirit would do that this morning. Um, speak through me. Take, uh, take what I've jumbled down in my notes and, and bring clarity to your people this morning, I pray. Holy Spirit, give each one a clear understanding of how your word always applies to our lives. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right. Um, <clears throat> let's dig in. Uh, we're going to read the chapter first, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of work our way through it. Um, this chapter starts out, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Which begs the question, how did he finish writing this book and the next one? Well, we actually never says that he wrote it. Um, he probably wrote a lot of it up to this point, and I'm fairly certain other people finished it out after this. Um, <clears throat> Just one little note there, because that's all, we're, that's all we're given, and there's not a whole sermon in this. But as I was reading, there was just a powerful reminder. Who can, who can bury or mark the passing of a faithful minister without feeling the grief? Particularly one who has, who has fed and prayed for you and interceded on your behalf before God and, and taught you. The ways of the Lord, um, it's, it's likely that even the enemies, David and Saul, gathered together at this remembrance. It says all Israel gathered to mark his passing. And um, anyway, that's most what I have to say about that. But uh, I, I know when my grandfather passed away, he was a pastor and a church planter before they used to call it that. And um, I felt that that someone who prayed for me regularly has passed. I felt the loss of that. And I know the nation of Israel felt the loss of their spiritual leader because Saul sure wasn't it. And his passing also marks the end of the period of the judges. Samuel was the last judge. Okay, now that really is all I have to say about that. Okay, all right, verse, uh, <clears throat> uh, moving on. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nebal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard 
in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and say to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Servants, uh, um, for, on a feast day, please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who's David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Um, pausing there really quickly, um, if you haven't been with us for this whole series, The Sword and Spear, the sword and spear is powerful symbolism, particularly in 1 Samuel. Um, and and we, see, we see throughout the book um, the phrase, and his sword or and his spear was in his hand, or and he had no sword in his hand. And those phrases aren't just because it's an awkward way of you know, translating into English an ancient piece of writing. Those phrases are there on purpose to illustrate where the individual being spoken of is placing their, their faith and trust and confidence. And when, when, when every time we see it, whenever someone is, is described as having his sword or spear in his hand, and usually it's King Saul, it is indicative of, of a time in which the individual is not trusting in the Lord. He's trusting in his own strength. He's taking, he's taking matters into his own hands. And here we see David... Um, doing this. This is actually the second time we see him do this. The first time, um, I believe Ethan preached this one. Um, he, he goes to, no, Phil preached this one. He goes and he, uh, he stops by a town and he's on the run. He's like, do you have a sword? And they're like, yeah, we have, uh, I mean, we've got Goliath's sword. Remember that one? <laughs> he's like, oh yeah, I remember that one. There's none like it. Uh, give it to me. And uh, a lot of people died because of that. <clears throat> And so anyway, for those of you that are, that are joining us more recently, that's the sword, the sword and spear motif is, is about that. And, and here we see David being tempted in the same way. Verse 14, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by day and by night, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one, that one cannot speak to him. 
Then Abigail made haste and, and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sails of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David is, as we say, seeing red. He is seething with rage at being treated this way by this, by this man and just, you know, being out away from a city, out in the wilderness, whatever, put you in a very vulnerable place. And that's, that's, what, that's what the shepherds would have been. Vulnerable, guarding and caring for someone else's wealth. Back then your wealth was not really in money. It was in your livestock and, and, and things like that. And they were in a vulnerable position. But David took care of these guys protected them, made sure that nothing was missing. And David's not an idiot. He knows he's on the run and he's going to need provisions. And taking care of a rich man's stuff is probably a good way to, you know, ensure you get provided for at some point. So it is inconscionable. Also, uh, for additional context, that the law of Moses and, and in that culture, I mean, you were, it was required to provide for a traveler. You know, someone comes to you, hospitality wasn't just important socially in that culture. I mean, it was like in the law, so much of the Old Testament law. Oh, man, I hope I'm not getting in the weeds here. So much of the Old Testament law, it's amazing. If you read Leviticus, if you ever tried to read Leviticus, it's kind of a slog, okay? It's a little bit hard. But if you read it through this lens, Leviticus is all of these hypothetical let's be honest, not so hypothetical, but all these hypothetical court cases that might be litigated, and in every one, the way that they are to, be, are to be adjudicated is that the vulnerable or weaker party is protected. And so it was in the law of their culture that a traveler comes to you, you are to care for him. You are to provide, provide him what he needs. God, um, God ordained that in his law. And so... For Nabal to refuse him is not only rude, it's um, inconscionable in their, in their society. Okay, so David takes this vow. Um, <clears throat> God do so to the enemies of, to, of David, or, or it actually says, God, basically, God do so to me, to David, if I leave. So he's, he's, he's swear, I swear, I vow I will not leave a single one alive by morning. Now, when Abigail saw David, verse 23, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. His name means fool. Nabal is just, it is literally the word for fool. And I just didn't translate it because it was his name. Oh, I, I mean, that's how you know your parents don't love you, I guess. But um, a, lot of, a lot of times, though, a lot of times in, in, ancient, in ancient writing, in an ancient um, culture, a, a word that sounds a lot like 
another word will be you know used to, so it could be his name sounded a lot like that word but that's unfortunate <laughs> Nabal is his name and folly is with him but I your servant did not see the young men of my lord whom you sent now then my lord as the lord lives and as your soul lives because the lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, there it is right there, saving with your own hand. Now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of Yahweh your God. And the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord Yahweh has done to my Lord according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. Or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord Yahweh has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For surely, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, you who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. Well, that's ironic. An actual anointed king just approached him for participation in a feast and he turned him away. Like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him all these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten, ten days later, the Lord Yahweh struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, 
to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Um, that last bit is not quite so uh, encouraging, I guess. Like, oh boy, David, it's, uh, that's not a recipe for a happy house. But <clears throat> let's, um, let's dig in here. I, I want to, I, we, we got we to gotta go quickly because um, I always say that and then I'm going super long. We have a baptism this morning. I have some things I want to say about that, so uh, I promise I'm going to try to move, move quickly here. But I want to look at the three characters in this passage, Nabal, Abigail, and David, and glean some things from this. Um, it's really important, and I say this a lot, it's really important when we approach Scripture, and particularly the Old Testament, um, don't assume that this story is being told just because it happened, and this is a kind of like the record of what happened. There's a lot more that happened than this. This story is being told on purpose, and so we need to ask ourselves, why this story? What is, being, what, what is this story showing us? And these ones with David are very often usually showing us something about God's anointed and foreshadowing Christ. <clears throat> so as we look at um, first lessons from Nabal. See, in, in this passage, we see David's sword drawn against an offender. And um, here we go. Um, <clears throat> some lessons from Nabal. First, a good family name is not an indicator of good character. Um, it mentions, just as this whole side thing, he was a Calebite. Like, that's supposed to mean something to you. And you move on, you're like, okay, I wish I had some context for that. Um, does that mean like all Calebites were known to be like low lives? Or is that like being a Cretan in the New Testament? Um, no. Caleb was of the tribe of Judah. And so if you were descended from Caleb, you remember, if you remember, Caleb was one of the spies who went into the promised land and said, yeah, we can take him. But everyone decided that they were afraid of giants instead. Descendants of Caleb were part of the tribe of Judah. You know who else was part of the tribe of Judah? David. And so, remember, your clan in this culture mattered, like, really a lot. And uh, just because you're not, you know, first cousins doesn't mean that you don't care that you're a distant relative of someone. And so, it mentions that because here, someone else from his tribe is approaching him in need, and he turns him away. That, uh, I can't underscore enough how unconscionable this is, and to someone of this guy's status and stature as a wealthy man, um, this is um, a serious offense. Um, so a good family name is not, uh, is not an indicator of good character. I, I could say a lot more about that, but we got to keep going. Um, <clears throat> also, oh yeah, I wanted to say this, he's aptly named fool. Um, we, we, don't, we, you know, we use the ESV here, but the, the, this, is, this is one of those passages where the KJV has a word that I just wish was still in there. The, the King James refers to, uses the word to describe him. He was churlish. And I encourage you all to find a way to use that one this week. Churlish. Oh, it's a good word. Um, great wealth is not an indicator of God's blessings. Okay, though, though he was a man of, of great means, he held his possessions with a tightly closed fist rather than with open hands. Um, <clears throat> This really isn't, isn't a lesson about, about wealth and greed. Well, okay, it kind of is. Um, it's not what the sermon is about. 
I'm sure most of you have known some wealthy people. And, or at least, you know, let's, okay, let's just say you know some celebrity rich people. And um, you probably know that some of them are just miserly like Ebenezer Scrooge with their money. And others are very philanthropic and happy to support. I mean, I, I'm going to tell you right now, I mean, like we, my wife and I raise about a third of, of our support, um, you know, for, for planting this church. And we're super thankful for a couple of, you know, a handful of wealthy friends that we have met over the years in ministry that, that are, you know, financially supportive of our ministry. We, we need people like that. God uses people like that. But great wealth is not automatically an indicator of God's blessings. And we certainly see that here. Um, Matthew Henry said, we mistake if we think we are absolute lords of what we have and may do what we please with it. No, we are but stewards and must use it as we are directed, remembering it is not our own, but his who entrusted us with it. That's a powerful reminder that whatever we have, we have from God. And when God directs us to use what he has given us a certain way, um, it is foolish for us to say, yeah, but that's mine. God says, no, that's mine. <clears throat> you are caring for it. And I've instructed you to use it a certain way. One of, the, one of our values as Neighborhood Church is, um, um, you know what, I have that written somewhere else. If I, if I lose my spot in my notes, we're going to be here all day. Um, <clears throat> It, it's, it's important that we address this, too. It, we would be remiss to say nothing of Nibal's drunkenness. It's amazing to, to, to see how he treats David's men. And, and don't kid yourself. He's heard of David. This isn't, he's like, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? It's not like he just doesn't know who he is, and if only he knew how significant David was. No. He's heard of David. Remember that, num- that, that song that hit number one on the... Uh, on the Israel charts back then. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. There's not anybody who doesn't know who David is. In fact, he even in his rude comments makes, makes mention, it makes a dig at David by saying, there's all, there's all kinds of servants going around these days who have broken away from their masters. He knows who David is. He knows that he served Saul and he knows that now Saul is pursuing him. He's fully aware and refusing to help. And it's so, it's so interesting, this, this contrast of how he, um, how he <clears throat> refuses David provision. And then, you know, Abigail goes back from, from the other thing and, and, he, and he's putting on a feast with just wanton extravagance. All kinds of excesses. I mean, okay, can we just say, Look at how much food she took to David. And Nabal hasn't even noticed it's gone yet. This is, uh, you know, they, they would shear their sheep twice a year. Um, you had to, or else it's like bad for the sheep. And also it's way more profitable if you do it twice a year um, because that's twice as much. Yeah, anyway. Um, it was a whole thing and they made a thing of it. And, and it was like, I mean, you gathered your whole, all of your people because it was going to be all hands on deck and you worked hard all day. And you, you know, and they celebrated at night. 
It was, a, you know, you celebrated God's provision and also it was just, you know, we're all out here in the fields. We might as well, we're not going to sleep great. We might as well eat well. Um, <clears throat> and so it's, it's just, it's so striking that he holds, he holds his possessions with a tightly closed fist. And the only time he opens that is when he gets to also partake of them. But is not willing to share with someone else. Now, he, um, so we'd, we'd be remiss to say nothing of Nabal's drunkenness. He proved himself a fool many times over, and this display of excess is par for the course. I love this. The, few, the fool cannot use plenty without abusing it. This guy can't have a good time without losing his dignity. Drinking to excess is a sure sign of a man lacking wisdom and is a sure way to destroy what he has. And that applies to possessions and relationships alike. Proverbs says the drunken and the glutton will come to poverty in chapter 23. In chapter 20, it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And we could like park there all morning on the warnings of, um, of excess particularly in the area of alcohol. And the thing is, regardless of where, where you stand this morning on whether or not Christians, you know, or whether it's okay to ever, you know, I'm, I'm not, that's not even the point that I'm making. I think we can all agree, regardless of where you stand on that, that excessive drinking and drunkenness is not only a recipe for disaster, it's sin. Another uh, important lesson we can learn from, from Nabal here is that one man's wickedness or foolishness can bring disaster to all those around him. I mean, David was ready to kill him for this offense, which that's, we'll get to David in a second. But, but he put his entire house in danger by his behavior and it is um, you know, one man's wickedness, can, it can affect other people. I mean, heck, go back to the last thing. Um, have you ever heard of someone drinking and driving and someone else got killed? There you go. One man's wickedness. Um, maybe you've been affected by someone else's sin at some point, and you know what I'm talking about. Nabal's unreasonableness is on display for all to see, and everyone knows that talking sense into him is an exercise in futility. I mean, the, 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 um, you know, we'll contrast that with David here in a bit, but it's, it's interesting, you know, the, the young men, they go to Abigail and like, you know how he is. You can't talk. I mean, he, these guys took care of us. I mean, we definitely would have lost some sheep had they not protected us. We came back with everything. I mean, you could make a strong case that Nabal owes David. But that's not even the point. But they're talking to his wife. They know that she is discerning. And again, we'll get to her here in a second. But um, you know how he is. Nobody can talk to him. He doesn't listen to anybody. He's churlish. There it is. <clears throat> One more really important thing is to remember it's God who deals with the wicked. It's God who deals with the wicked. And that's, that's important for us no matter which side of that you're on. 
if you're in the category of the wicked, God will deal with you. But of course, no one here would count themselves in that that punch. None of us would call ourselves wicked, but yet Scripture tells us that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And it is God who deals with the wicked. On On the other side of that same coin, if you're the one being afflicted by someone who is wicked, remember, God settles all of his accounts. Some of them this side of eternity and some of them the other side of eternity. But he will deal with the wicked always. All right, some lessons from Abigail <clears throat> as, we, as we go a little bit deeper here. Um, lessons from Abigail, she could have uh, done better. <clears throat> I think we can make that case. Well, actually, by the end of the chapter, she has done better. Um, but uh, it's likely she didn't actually have a, a say in the matter of who she got married to. Um, there's, uh, you know, a super wealthy guy shows up. And uh, if your dad's like, kind of poor you you don't want to be in that position because you read this and you're like how does somebody like Abigail like it says she's discerning and yet she's married to this guy okay I think we can make a strong case that she didn't get a say in that Um, also the the fact that she's called discerning do you realize only one person in scripture has been called discerning up to this point is Joseph when it describes his, his wisdom in, um, in not only, the, the inter, you know, as, as God gave him interpretations of dreams, okay, that wasn't him, that was from God. God gave him the interpretations, and then he was discerning, he had discernment from the Lord of what to do about it. How to, how to not only preserve the nation of Egypt through a seven-year famine, but to even become, in that time, a net exporter and saving the lives of so many surrounding nations, he was discerning. And that same description is given here for Abigail. She was willing to step in when those in her care were in danger, even though her own protector was careless toward them and toward her. There's a boldness in Abigail that was, um, shall we say, not common in the ancient world. Um, Granted, being married to a guy like that, she's probably gotten very good at uh, figuring out how to, <laughs> all right, how to keep keep the family business afloat while this guy's trying to wreck everything. I mean, like, I think you can make a strong case too that all of Nabal's wealth and success, given what we know about him, would probably not be so if not for his wife. What do they say? Behind every great man. Something, something. <laughs> Is an even greater woman. Um, I resemble that remark. <clears throat> and she uses this discernment from the Lord to protect people who she knew were in danger, to um, right wrongs that were not her fault, even though she took responsibility for them. It, it's, it, I mean, it's, it, you almost cringe when you read her talking to David, taking responsibility for this jerk's way of treating him, and yet her humility and wisdom and discernment are on display here. Um, <clears throat> not only that, so 
she approaches David very, um, very not just carefully, but with deference and respect. He's, he's God's anointed. He also commands 600 pretty elite soldiers. Oh, so there's that too. But he, she approaches him in, in, a, in a respectful manner. She, clearly, she, I mean, she, she speaks to David's future. She knows who he is. She knows that he's also been anointed. And she speaks to David, you know, beyond, okay, she gets past the apology. She gives all the stuff. And then she speaks to David things that would have maybe been like hard to hear. But wow, does she word them really well. Um, do any of you have a woman in your life who has a way with words? My wife has a way with words. I'll leave it at that. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I cannot tell you how many times, as recently as yesterday, uh, got a text from somebody and I summarized it for her and then let her read it. And she was like, that's, that's, how did you get that? That's not all what he said. Um, I often have her proofread, um, proofread things I'm going to say that are uh, social in nature. I can teach, okay, but... uh, Sometimes navigating the complexities of social interactions are challenging. <laughs> David says, or Abigail says some hard things to David. And he not only hears them, we'll look at this in a second, I mean, he thanks her for the things that she says. I mean, she is literally talking him down off a cliff. <laughs> And not that he was getting ready to jump off a cliff, but metaphorically, okay, literally he was on a mountainside, but metaphorically, he's about ready to fall into some serious temptation that would be potentially career-ending for him. He is about to fail the test of trusting God like Saul did when Saul took things took matters into his own hand and did things his own way, not the way God had told him to. David is being tested as God's anointed in this time. And he passes this one, but only with the help of a wise woman. There's a lot to be said there. Similar to Jonathan's words to Saul, her her words to David were words fitly spoken and saved many lives that night. You, and you contrast her deference and respectful approach with that of her husband's. That was churlish. Um, <clears throat> she spoke not only to avert disaster for Nabal's men, who, let's be honest, how many of the people who David was going to kill that night were involved in the offense? Like exactly one that we know of. In fact, there's at least a handful of those guys who David kind of liked. I mean, good grief, he protected these guys. And like, you know, they had, a, they had a relationship out in the wilderness. He had just taken a vow. I'm not going to leave a single guy alive that works for him. She not only averted disaster for Nabal's men, but she also spoke spiritual wisdom to David, reminding him of his position as God's anointed and warning him of the stain this act would leave on his conscience and reputation and also of his blood guilt before God. There's a whole lesson there 
about saying hard things in a way that people can hear them. If you've ever been in a position where you had to have a tough conversation with someone, you know that it matters so much how you say what needs to be said. And she was very wise in that. Um, Charles Spurgeon says here, he says, in, in reference to the verse where, where David is speaking to her and he says, Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Spurgeon writes, Much of a person's character comes from other people. What we are is not all of ourselves. We are deep in debt to others. Indeed, what person is there on whom a hundred fingers have not molded him and a thousand influences made his plastic character what it is? I know that the grace of God is what makes a person right before God, but I know also that holy associations prevent us from indulging in sin into which under other circumstances we should certainly have plunged. In looking back, we might say, I can see the finger of God in a great many places where I might have ruined myself there and there and there. Though I knew him not, his arms were underneath me. He guided me with his eyes. He led me by his right hand that I might not be utterly destroyed. Lastly, in agreeing to marry David, she showed a willingness to share in his trials, okay? She was married to a super wealthy guy. I mean, even after he's dead and uh, I'm a, I don't know what happens to the family business here, um, but, you know, she goes away with nothing, well, except for five servants. So, she, you know, she, she's, leave, she's leaving a very comfortable life to go and follow a husband on the run, a fugitive from, I don't want to say the law, but fugitive from Saul anyway. Lifestyle, not an immediate upgrade. Personality, definitely a big upgrade. Um, ultimately, even the lifestyle would have probably been an upgrade. You know, she's going to like live in a palace and stuff. <clears throat> but she shows a willingness to share in his trials. Again, quoting Matthew Henry, thus those who join themselves to Christ must be willing now to suffer with him, believing that hereafter they shall reign with him. God blessed her with a better protector. And, um, and, and that's, that's encouraging. We see this, this wonderful woman married to this awful guy and in the, you know, who, who like puts her in danger and doesn't even care. And in the end of this story, we see her married to David. Much better situation for her. All right, lessons from David. Sorry, man, I just feel like we're moving so fast here. Um, <clears throat> so much more I want to say about some of these things. Something from, from David here is we never know how or through whom God will provide for our needs. And sometimes we have not because we have asked not, as Scripture says. He, David was right to ask Nabal for provision. It, it was, he wasn't out of line. He was very much in line. He was right to ask for provision, but it's never right to covet what belongs to another and certainly not to take by force what God has not given to us. I, I can say personally, I mean, I can't even... I cannot even express the humble gratitude that I feel for so many that have poured out support 
um, for my wife and I as, as we as we go through the battle um, with breast cancer and, and, and all of this. It is just unbelievable how God has provided for our family. Some of it from people we don't even know. Like, we literally have never even met. And one the other day, I was like, do you know these people? Like, who, who are these people? You know, like, oh, who do we know? Look them up on Facebook. Okay, they must know these people. We never know how or through whom God is going to provide for our needs. God had, had led David and his men to intersect with Nabal and his men. And David thought God is going to provide for our needs in this certain way. And then it, it didn't shake out that way. God didn't soften Nabal's heart and, and you know, he didn't welcome David in and happily repay him kindness for kindness, no. And yet, God did still provide for David in his own way through Nabal's wealth. We never know how or through whom God's going to provide for our needs. Um, another lesson here, we ought to be willing to do right by our fellow, um, our fellow man with no expectation to receive anything in return. Um, this is, uh, you know, whether or not there's some requirement, you know, some, some expectation, cultural expectation, oh, they, well, they ought to, well, he, they owe me, or I can't believe they, we, we, ought to, we ought to be willing to do right by someone, like David and his men protecting these shepherds in the wilderness, even if there is no expectation that we would receive anything in return. You know, biblical love could be defined this way, meeting a need, because there's a need, expecting nothing in return. Love is meeting a need because there's a need, expecting nothing in return. True, real love, the love that, that God exemplifies and that, that we see in Scripture is meeting a need because there's a need, just because there's a need, with no expectation to receive anything in return. If we have an expectation to receive something in return, that's a transaction. That's, that's not love. Moving on, having shown so much restraint towards Saul, his would-be murderer, David draws his sword against someone who has disrespected him. Saul throws spears at David on a regular basis. And he refuses to do Saul harm. I mean, has opportunity after opportunity. Next week we'll see another opportunity where he doesn't do Saul harm. And, and yet, is ready to slaughter someone who slaps him across the face. Just imagine these, you know, Victorian gentlemen with the, you know, the gloves. You know, I challenge you to a duel. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? That's, that's how you respond there, and this is how you respond here. But there's a reality to the human condition in which we can fall under the spell of our own passions. And we don't, we don't get a lot of, of what's, what's in David's heart here. Is, is, he, is, has he, is he puffed up with pride because God has cared for him so well in the wilderness? Is he puffed up with pride as, as God's anointed that how Dare anyone speak to me like that? 
We don't know. But we do know he was on the wrong, he had drawn the wrong conclusion about how he ought to handle it. Taking his sword in his hand to claim vengeance for himself, which is something that belongs to God, he was standing on the precipice of temptation and ready to fall. And and I just want to remind us, when God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, it is not just a statement of, of how God will care for his own. It, certainly, it's that. But, but it, is, it is a statement of, in that phrase, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What he's saying is, you think you're offended, but you're not even righteous. You think you're offended, but you didn't even make the moral law that was broken there. You think that you're offended, but I am holy, and that offending person bears my image and is tarnishing it by their actions. When, when God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, he is saying, I alone am worthy to stand in judgment, moral judgment over another. And not only that, I alone am qualified to righteously deal out the sentence for that judgment. When we, when we take vengeance into our own hands, you know, we, just, we just think of it as like, oh, he got, he got revenge all by himself. He should have let God do it. No, the reason that you have to let God settle those scores is because you are not righteous. You cannot, I cannot take vengeance myself and do it in a way that is morally just and right. Only God is the righteous judge. And so that is why vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is his alone to take. At the end of David's conversation with Abigail, um, <clears throat> this is a... Uh, um, Oh, wait, hold on, I'm all over the place here. Okay, uh, this is Matthew Henry, an, another quote from him. He's, uh, he says, David gives God thanks for sending him this happy check in his sinful way. Whoever meets us with counsel, direction, comfort, caution, or seasonable reproof, we must see God sending them. We ought to be very thankful for those happy providences which are the means of keeping us from sinning. Most people think it enough if they take reproof patiently. But few, here we go, sorry. Um, most people think it enough if they take reproof patiently, but few will take it thankfully and commend those who give it and accept it as a favor. The nearer we are to committing sin, the greater is the mercy of a seasonable restraint. Well said, Matthew Henry. It's, it's one thing to kind of grit your teeth and let somebody say some hard things to you and, and, you know, not say the thing you really wanted to say. It's a whole other thing to recognize what they just kept you from and be thankful that they stopped you. 
Uh, David had sworn an oath that he would kill those men. But we have to remember, it is better to break an oath or a vow, especially a foolish one, than it is to take a life, especially innocent ones. What, what do we do with that? David swore an oath, by God, may God do to me this much and worse if I leave a single male alive in the morning. That's a stupid oath, a stupid vow to take. He never should have said that. Why doesn't God then visit that on David's head? Because God knows you never should have said that. And of course I'm not going to hold you to that. I don't want you to do that. And God is pleased that David broke that vow and did not shed innocent blood. Okay. Now I've gone over the time I meant to go. See, why did I say that? Now you're all wondering what's going to be done. Okay. <clears throat> why do these things? Um, don't miss the gospel in this passage. This, this, okay, I really feel like this is one of, the, one of the pieces that really answers the why this story. Okay, partly it's because this is one of David's tests as God's anointed. Saul was anointed, faced tests, passed one, failed two. The kingship was torn away from him. David is anointed, faces tests before he actually ascends the throne and he passes them. And this is an example of him passing that test. But I want us to see, I want us to see something really powerful. The gospel is in every passage in scripture. It's in every story. It's in every story and don't miss it here. What we see in this passage, we see Abigail. She throws herself on the mercy of God's anointed. And even though David would not have been right to take vengeance himself, he is a picture of the anointed one to come. Jesus Christ. And his, his stayed hand, him, him not, not dealing out the punishment he was getting ready to deal out, is a picture of God withholding his righteous judgment that all who repent may be shown mercy. But in that be assured, God's judgment against sin is coming as sure as the dawn. Let's not be like Nabal. A fool who could not see the danger his offenses against God's anointed placed him in. Rather, let us be like Abigail and believe that he is deserving of our repentance, our respect, and as our king, whatever he asks of us. Just a couple of points for, you know, by way of application as we, as we close this morning. Um, no matter how right we think we are, um, we must always be careful to stop and listen to others. Proverbs says, the same phrase in two different places. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Sometimes we are so sure we're right. Have you ever had somebody say, everybody keeps telling me, okay, well, hold on. If everybody's telling you it's a bad idea, maybe it's a bad idea. If there's that much smoke, maybe there's fire. Uh, and, and the last thing, we should be generous with those who protect us and help us prosper, even if we are not obligated to do so by law or custom. And, and, and I just wanted to touch here, um, one of our, our values of, as neighborhood church is that we hold God's gifts with open hands. If you see them out on the, um, out on the wall hanging there in the, in the uh, Kara, what do we call in that room again? I don't know, we tore some walls down, now I don't know what to call the room, but out in the foyer, the foyer, that sounds pretentious. Um, 
One of our values is we hold God's gifts with open hands. God gives each of us resources, experiences, and abilities, so we share them generously with others. Everything we have is God's, and he's given it to us to steward. Um, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. We're going to close in prayer. We're going we're gonna to sing another song, and, and please uh, uh, don't, don't sneak out during the song unless you absolutely have to, because we are getting to celebrate um, just an, an incredible ordinance of the church with baptism this morning um, after that, so, so please, um, please do participate in that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for, um, thank you for the warning that we are given in, um, in David's story here. Thank you so much for people like Abigail in our lives. For many of us, that's our, our wives. Sometimes, sometimes other people too, parents, wise friends. God, thank you for the way that you keep us from ourselves. God, thank you too for the warning not to be like a foolish man who has no respect for what you have anointed as holy. May we not throw in our lot with that kind. May we not be that kind of man or woman. Thank you for this beautiful picture of the gospel. Under righteous condemnation, with judgment bearing down upon us, we can throw ourselves on the mercy of your anointed, Jesus Christ, and receive forgiveness of sins. What a beautiful picture this morning of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's go and be his witnesses. But actually, let's stick around for lunch and be his witnesses. Mm-hmm.